10.30 people, welcome and good morning to uh, all of you who are, or, or I shouldn't say all, like there's a big crowd, whoever's watching on the live stream too. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Let me uh, do a couple of announcements real quick and then we'll pray, we'll stand and pray and then we'll continue in worship. So look at the back of the bulletin after church today, uh, some of our youth who are going to the uh, March for Life uh, in Washington in January are doing, uh, making spaghetti for you downstairs, so stop down there on your way out and support them. Um, also, uh, the note in there from the Madison County Schools mission, uh, things that we need for uh, getting ready for winter here. So take a look through there and then uh, get a hold of Sandy or call Cheryl here at the church office. Youth confirmation is on for today. That's right after, um, right after this worship service. And then um, no adult... No new members class tonight, but there is prayer meeting at 5.30 for whoever wants to come for that. So I uh, hope to see you guys there. All right, stand with me, and then uh, let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into worship. Uh, Father, we, uh, we need you all the time. We need you this morning. Uh, we are well aware of the fact that we are bad leaders and that we make bad decisions. We're well, well aware of the fact that uh, we're broken and we need fixed, and we ask you to forgive us for all the times when we've tried to lead ourselves, when all the times we've tried to fix ourselves and it hasn't worked out. We ask for forgiveness and we ask for healing and we want you to lead us and guide us. And we need your presence here today, Father. We don't need a, a how-to manual uh, because we can't ever follow directions anyway. We need you to come here and rescue us. 
And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus, that you would do just that this morning, that in your word and in your sacraments and in the praises that your people sing to you, that you would be present, uh, rescuing us, fixing us, being our God and letting us be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all your sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Stay standing for the first hymn. Psalm 107, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. 
The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is the story of Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, and neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading, continuing on in Hebrews. Uh, we've been reading through Hebrews, uh, going on into Hebrews 9. Same theme, though. In the, in the Old Testament, the, pre, the priest had to continually go into a physical building to make sacrifice for sins. But now with Jesus, we don't need that anymore. Because Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
gospel reading. Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Okay, you may be seated. Would you, did uh, any of you, when we were reading that, did any of you think, what do those three stories have to do with each other? Like, what, what's the connection there? Like, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and asks the question, how can the Messiah be called his son? And then, uh, th- then he goes, and as far as the Pharisees and the scribes are concerned, beware of them because they're bad leaders. And then he says, he sits down at the temple and he's looking at the people putting the money in the offering box and he says, oh, there was a widow who only put in a little bit, but she actually put in more than they did because she gave out of her poverty. What do those three stories have to do with each other? Well, this is, very, this is a very important point in the text here. And the three stories are directly linked. And one of the unfortunate things about reading through the gospel of Mark like we do during the church year here, as we jump around a little bit and we, we read Mark 12 and 11, uh, several months ago, and now we've all forgotten what they say, and then we're going to pop right back into the middle of Mark 12, is that we can't actually see the flow like what Mark is trying to point out, which is one reason why uh, you should also read Mark on your own, as well as coming to church and reading it with uh, everybody else. Uh, more on that in just a few minutes. But So, so, so let, me, let me just set it up a little bit. Uh, in Mark 11, um, I think that's right, Mark 11, yes, Jesus comes into Jerusalem that final time, and he cleanses the temple. Do you guys remember that story? He goes in the temple and he throws out everybody who is exchanging cash for animals to sacrifice, which you had to do if you were traveling to Passover from wherever, Greece or North Africa or Persia, wherever. You weren't going to take animals with you to sacrifice. You were going to take money and then you were going to buy animals there. Well, Jesus goes in and shuts that whole system down. And, and like John says, no sacrifices could take place. Like he had shut the entire temple down. Well, that's like a big deal. Like the temple is, the temple is so important in Jewish life and thought in Jesus' day. The temple is the place where God lives. The temple is the place where God reveals himself to people. The temple, maybe even most important, the temple is the place, the only place where sins can be forgiven. You have to go to the temple. And here comes this guy, and he shuts the whole thing down. Who gives him the right to do that? That question, who gives you the right to do that, is the question that chapters 11, the rest of chapter 11 and the whole of chapter 12 revolve around. Who gives you the right to come in here and shut down the most important thing? The priest can't even do that. Like if Caesar came in and tried to do that, we would riot. Who gives you the right to come in here and do that? And Jesus has all sorts of cryptic answers. You know, he says that, the, John has him saying that line about um, you know, tear the temple down, and in three days I'll raise it up again. That's what gives me the right to do it. And everybody's like, what? What are you saying? What are you talking about? There's a lot of people come up to him and say, a lot of different groups come up and say, have different questions for, uh, for, uh, about the temple and, and what, what was happening there. Uh, Jesus is explaining why it is that he has the authority to do that. In chapter 12, you don't need to go back and read it later. But he tells this story about the tenants. Do you remember this, that... Like there's this uh, vineyard and the master of the vineyard puts tenants in it and the tenants are all lousy and they botch the whole thing up and they're dishonest. And so finally he sends his son to straighten things out and they kill his son 
But in the process of doing that, the temple is purified. Um, Jesus is basically saying when the Messiah gets here, I mean, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. When the Messiah gets here, he's going to clean up everything and vindicate. And, and, and that's what gives me the right to do it because I'm the Messiah who's here. You're going to end up killing me for it. I get that. That's a part of the game. But that's what's happening. I shut the temple down because I'm the Messiah and I have the right to do it. Well, does the Messiah really have the right to do it? That's probably not the case. David was the first Messiah, and he didn't have the right to shut the temple down. What gives you the right to do it? And so there's all these conversations about, like, um, th- then some people come up and they'll be like, oh, so you're a revolutionary then, right? You're going you're gonna, to uh, shut the temple down. You must be anti-Rome. Like, uh, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus says, I'm not falling for that. Like, if, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Then the people who run the temple are like, so do you believe in resurrection? The Sadducees asked him. That's not a theological question primarily. Um, I'm trying to say, I don't know if this is interesting to you or not. It's not a theological question. It's a political question. Because when in most Jewish, the, the mind of most Jewish people, when the Messiah came and restored the temple, purified it, and the new age started, that would be when resurrection would happen. And so when the Sadducees asked him, do you believe in resurrection? One of the things they're asking is, do you believe in revolution? Do you believe that Rome needs to be revolted against? Remember, the Sadducees work for the Romans and run the temple. And so it's very important to them that they find out from this guy, are you after us? And Jesus says, actually, I do believe in resurrection, which is not very assuring to them because resurrection is code for them that somebody's going to come in here and kill us in the name of like political freedom. And Jesus is having all these conversations, and at the end of these conversations, Nobody had anything else to ask him. Like, he shut them all down. In fact, this isn't in your reading, but in verse 34, which is the verse right before our reading, it's, uh, Mark says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And then it goes into our section, as Jesus taught in the temple, it's very important that he be in the temple. Because remember, the whole point of this whole conversation in chapters 11 and 12 is, what gives him the right to shut the temple down? So Jesus is standing there right in the middle of the temple, which he believes he has the right to shut down, and he says this, I have a riddle for you guys, and I want you to think about this. And the riddle is the first verse of Psalm 110. Now, a couple of things. First of all, Psalm 110, the most popular psalm of Jesus' day, by far the most popular psalm. Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to 33 times in the New Testament. Super important. So Jesus isn't like pulling out some verse that nobody else knows. But it's a verse that nobody understands, and Jesus wants them to get it. So he brings out Psalm 110. Now, background to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is written by David. It's a psalm of David. David is the proto-Messiah. David was anointed by God to kill Goliath and establish Israel and kick out all the bad guys, beat beat up on the Philistines over and over, and establish the nation of Israel. There is this hope. So David is... Like, here's God, the creator God, and David is like right beneath him in the Jewish mindset, right? In in fact, Psalm 2 actually calls David God's son. God says to David, today you're my son, I've begotten you. That's in Psalm 2. So it's, I mean, the New Testament uses it about Jesus, but in Psalm 2, it's about David. So David is super important, and there's always this hope in the Jewish world, in Jesus' day, there's this hope that goes back a thousand years, that at some point... You guys are aware of this if you've been to any sort of Christmas service. That at some point, one of David's sons would come back and get rid of the bad guys. Kick the Romans out, establish a new nation of Israel. This is, the Old Testament's full of it. Uh, Psalm 89 is about this. Uh, Isaiah 9 is about this. Isaiah 11 is about David's son coming and making all things new. Jeremiah 30 is about this. Ezekiel 34 is about this. The Psalms of Solomon, which aren't in our Bible, but were written about 100 years before Jesus, they're about the son of David coming back and making good. In fact, do you remember a couple weeks ago, um, uh, Bartimaeus, is the blind guy, is sitting outside of Jericho, and Jesus comes through, and uh, Bartimaeus yells out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls him son of David because that's the hope, that this guy is the true son of David who's going to come back. Okay, that's background. Now look at Psalm 110 with me. Can you look down here at verse uh, 35, the first verse in the reading? Jesus taught in the temple and he said this, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
How is that possible? David, because David himself and the Holy Spirit declares, now can I stop, can, can I do a 30 second commercial here real quick? David himself says, Psalm 110, says in the Holy Spirit. Jesus just assumes that the Psalms were written by David, yes, but they come from the Holy Spirit. It just seems like Christianity 101 to me. Like, you should read the Bible because it's God talking. That's what that means. Like, you should read the Bible. I'm going to guess that none of you have come to church, those of you who've come of your own free will, none of you have come here because you're disinterested in being connected with God. Like, everybody's here because there's this sense that, like, I want to know God better. Or maybe you're even just kind of skeptical and you have questions, and maybe the possibility of knowing God better is out there. And just, just let me say that if that's you, if you want to know God better, the way to do it is to read your Bible. And I just feel like I'm talking, to, this is like second grade Sunday school, but it's amazing to me how many Lutherans I talk to. Can I talk to the Lutherans for a second? How many Lutherans I talk to who are like, I don't even know, like if I don't even know if God's there sometimes, and I'll be like, well, like, how, how is your Bible study going? And they'll be like, I don't really. Well, of course you don't know if God's there. It'd be like if I never talked to Angela and then, Two weeks after I said I'm not going to talk to Angela anymore, I'd be like, I don't even know if, like, I don't even know what she thinks about me or if she's even, well, yeah, go talk to her, Aaron. Jesus assumes that the Bible comes from God. We should assume the Bible comes from God. If you want to know God better, it's a three-step argument. If you want to know God better, like, be in God's Word. Okay, commercial over. Here's, here's, what Jesus, here's Jesus' point. And you've got to pay attention because it's a little bit slick. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, now catch this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, what does that mean? The first Lord there, the Lord is actually God. I don't know why I'm doing this, like God's above my head or something. It's God. In fact, it's, it's, it's clear in, in Hebrew because it's just the word Yahweh there, the name for God. Yahweh, creator God, said to my Lord, there's the problem. David's talking, and he said, so is everybody trying? In the Jewish mindset, here's God. David is his Messiah right underneath him. And then David watches out and guards for all the people. Someday David's going to have a son that fills that role too. But Jesus says, check it. The Lord said to my Lord, so David's got two lords. He's got Yahweh, and then there's another Lord that he's calling my Lord. That's not the way that you talk to your son, even in our culture, but especially in their culture. You would not. The son is never greater than his father. You would never call your son my Lord. That's unthinkable. But David said that my Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, and he doesn't name him. And then Jesus just says, what's up with that, guys? What do you make of that? Like David's talking but there's somebody above David. Who would that be? How could you be above David? Hmm. And then he just leaves it. You will hear frequently, you, you will hear, uh, especially, especially around Easter time, all the news magazine shows will do the stories about who was the real Jesus of Nazareth. And they all will say this. They all will say, Jesus of Nazareth was this powerful teacher, dynamic teacher, led this great following 2,000 years ago in what is now currently Palestine. However, he never claimed to be God. Like He has all these followers that now say he claimed to be God, but Jesus never, ever said he was God. And a lot of people will be like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then they'll be like, well, does he? And they'll flip through the Gospels, and the, but he actually never says, I'm God. Which is true. Jesus never stands up in the middle of an agora in Nazareth. He never strides into the temple and says, everybody hold up. I haven't told you this yet. I've been waiting for a special occasion. I'm actually the creator God. He never says that. Never one time. But can you imagine why? Like what would be the payout? He would definitely, best case scenario, everybody would be like, dude's insane. Worst case scenario, he gets himself killed, which actually is what happened. So what does he do instead? It's not that it's not true. He just low-keys it. He just slow plays his hand. Hey, when the Messiah comes, 
he's actually not going to be just David's son biologically, but David's going to call, David calls him my Lord. What do you guys think of that? What do you guys think of that? Jesus, this is what, uh, this is the first point here, is that the, the, the identity of the Messiah is actually divine. What we need is, I mean, so this, this is because this is what we need, right? We don't need, a, we need, we need leadership. That's what we need. We need a king. We need a king to come back and to put things to right. We all want a good leader, and none of us have a good leader. I, I don't know. I get, to, do you, are you like me? Do you get tired of like every two years people saying, this is the most important election of our lifetime? They're all the most important election of our lifetime. Why is that? It's because bad leadership. We don't have any good leaders in this country. And even the good leaders in this country aren't good leaders. So the, the people that, there are certain people that we say are bad leaders. Those are the people that we don't like. There are certain people that we say are good leaders, but then when they don't actually get stuff done, we say, well, that's because nobody would, like, they were good leaders, and if, like, the, if, if the country or the state or the county or the city had just gone along with them, everything would have been better. But guess what? Nobody went along with them, and so nothing got done. You know why nobody went along with them? Because they're bad leaders. Like, good leaders get people to go along with them. But there's a, there's a, a fantastic dearth of leaders, and we keep on putting, investing in, like, we just need a good leader. You guys have been in churches before, too, where, like, everybody's like, oh, I don't like this pastor. The last pastor was good. We need to get a new pastor in here. Or you've worked in an office where you're like, the new boss, man, uh, not like the old boss. We just need to get a new boss in here. And I'm just, I'm just here to tell you that we're at whatever venue that you're living in where you're like, we need better leadership. It's just not going to happen because there's not any good leaders except for this guy, the Messiah. He is the good leader. But on top of that, check this out. Now, Jesus didn't quote this part, but all of his hearers, again, Psalm 110 is the most popular psalm of Jesus' day. All of his hearers would have known where this is headed. I'm going to read a little bit to you. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, it's a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. All the nations of the earth are going to bow down to you. But then check this out, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Whoever this messianic figure is, who is David's Lord and is working with Yahweh, is going to be the true king. He's going to hold the scepter at which all nations will bow. He is also going to be a priest, a perfect priest, a priest with complete, infinite righteousness. Like Melchizedek, who you can't know anything about. You could go back and read Genesis 17 if you're interested in that. Like Melchizedek, he's the perfect priest. That's who this guy is going to be. Why is Jesus bringing up Psalm 110 here? Because he's answering the question, who gives you the right to shut down the temple? And the answer is the only person who has the right to shut down God's house is God himself. And I went in there and I did it. And I can get away with it because I'm the Messiah, king of the universe, and I am the high priest of the universe. And you're going to kill me. I've predicted it three times so far. I came to Jerusalem so that will happen. But you're only going to serve my purposes. By killing me, you're going to actualize the real temple. When you kill me and I rise from the dead, it will allow me to be the Lord of the universe and reign over all things. When you kill me and I rise from the dead, I will pay for the sins of the world in ways that this building never could. I'm the Messiah, and you will realize that when I die and I rise from the dead. That's why he brings up Psalm 110. The Messiah is not just going to be this son of David who kills the Goliaths and sets up a political kingdom and kicks out the bad guys. This Messiah is going to be the Lord of David who makes all things new. So that's the first thing. That's his identity. Second thing here, the, moving on to verses 38 through 40. What will this Messiah look like? And now he's got this section here where he's talking about bad leaders. And what he's doing here, do you see what he's doing? You see how these go together? Here's the good leader, the king priest who can shut down the temple and make good on things the building was only pointing towards. What do bad leaders look like? What should you stay away from? And then he gives a description. Now, the reason why he says this, I say, the reason why he says this is because he wants us to stay away from these bad leaders. He doesn't want you and me to have these qualities, but anybody who claims to be a leader, one of the signs that they are not leading in the name of the Messiah is when they evidence these qualities. There's three bad qualities here. And actually, I'm going to get to, I'm going to, can I go in the back door? I'm not going to talk about the bad qualities necessarily. I'm going to talk about the good qualities that our king, priest, Messiah embodies that these bad qualities are the flip side of, okay? 
So three things here. Jesus is humble, Jesus is generous, and Jesus is genuinely interested in a relationship with his Father. So first of all, verses 38 through 39, Jesus is humble. Um, Here's uh, an example of not being humble. Beware of the scribes. Watch out for bad leaders. Watch out for the non-Messiahs. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around. This is all talking about being, th- them being proud. Who like to walk around in long robes. That, that's almost certainly talking about um, uh, the prayer, the long, elaborate, and, and the more wealthy you were, the more beautiful uh, prayer robes that uh, rabbis would wear with the tassels underneath that were signs of their spirituality and that they wore, uh, that they wore with pride and uh, expected everybody to see them and look up to them. More on that in just a second. Um, They like greetings in the marketplaces. The Mishnah says that when you see a rabbi, everybody is required to greet and acknowledge that rabbi as as a a spiritual leader. The only only people who weren't required to do that were uh, day laborers who were in the middle of their job. The Mishnah says that those people can continue working. And if they don't have anything to do, they can greet the rabbi as a rabbi. But if not, they can continue working. So, of course, you can imagine, like, you put on a long robe, imagine that you're a rabbi. I know this doesn't work in our culture. In our culture, the upper classes are the wealthy and the entertainers. In many cultures, like in India today, the upper classes are the religious leaders. That's the way their their culture was. So if you wanted to be genuinely looked up to and admired as a sort of a mini-celebrity, being a religious leader would be the ticket. So you put on your prayer robe and you're walking around town, and everybody is required to stop what they're doing and greet you. Definitely an ego boost for many of these guys. They like the best seats in the synagogue. Verse uh, 39. Um, synagogues, you can Google this. Look, look up at like an archaeological recovery of an ancient synagogue. Synagogue would have a room, typically rectangular, uh, have benches along the walls. Uh, the benches were for the muckety-mucks to sit in, and the rabbis, and the rich people. And then the floor... Would, have, would, would, would not have had chairs were where you and I would sit on the floor and listen to the teaching. But the benches along the edge were for the important people. And to get into the synagogue and snag one of the great seats is not just like, oh, this is more comfortable than sitting on the floor. It's a sign of like honor and standing in the community. And uh, the places of honor at feast. We typically don't do this at, um, at our dinners where we have places of honor. But sometimes we do. Like, if you were invited to somebody's birthday party at a restaurant, right, and you, you knew them, but mainly you were friends with, like, one of their kids or something, but, but, but you sort of knew them, like, you wouldn't, like, get to the restaurant and, like, walk right up and sit right next to them. You would assume that there were other people who'd be closer to them. We have this in our culture, too. And this sort of honor, that, that these guys want the acclaim and the honor that goes with being religious leaders. Stay away from those guys. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is humble. Okay, let me ask you this question. Um, and I, I couldn't think of a good word to do, so just hang in there with me, and then we'll qualify it as we go along. Let me ask you this question. Think about this. Is Jesus arrogant, or is he humble? Is Jesus arrogant, or is he humble? J- Jesus is a weird mixture, isn't he? Jesus is the most arrogant punk ever. Like, who, who else would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? You can't know God unless you go through me. Who else would do that? Who else would, like, you know, there's that scene in the fishing boat after he calms the storm, like, and Peter throws himself down. Like, what if I came to you, and I, like, threw myself down at your feet, and I began worshiping you? What would you say? You'd be totally weirded out. You'd be like, get up now. This is, like, crazy. You're making it. Fool out of both of us. Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and worships him, and Jesus just takes it. Jesus just accepts it. Jesus is the most arrogant person in the world. You can't know God except unless you worship me. Jesus simultaneously is the most humble person in the entire world. Like nobody else, no other leader at this, no other adult at this time would like put his arm around kids. I know that's normal for us, but it's only because Jesus normalized it, to be honest with you. No other adult would put his arm around kids and say, hey, this is the, this is the top of the line. The kingdom of God, that's, this, is, this is where it's at right here. Nobody at that time, no religious leader at that time, would allow women to be part of his discipleship team. Would allow women to come in and sit at his feet and learn like he did with Mary and Martha. 
Nobody at this time would like, no religious leader would hang out. No cultural leader at this time would hang out in leper colonies, touching people in order to heal them. No, nobody, would be, nobody would be able to call down 10,000 of angels to defend himself and willingly let other human beings who he created, whose hearts he was causing to beat at that very moment by a sovereign will, allow them to kill himself. Jesus is simultaneously the most arrogant person in the world and the most humble person in the world. And he can do it because he's the Messiah King Priest. Because he is God. Because he is the one who can shut down the temple and it make good. Jesus is humble. Second of all, Jesus is generous. Look at the, uh, the, the description of the bad guys in verse 42. I'm sorry, verse 40. Uh, they devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. This is what, you, you guys know, this is one of the most despicable things in the world when somebody who has religious power or any kind of power uses that power to feed their own idols, uses that power to manipulate others into giving them money. That's the most despicable thing. Or any, any of the other, you know, the big three idols, I talk about this a lot. Uh, sex, money, and power. These are the three big things that control humans, the things that we all are convinced are gonna make us happy. If I could have sex, money, and power, everything would be great. We chase after those leaders Bad leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, economic leaders, use other people, unfortunately the bad ones, use other people to get for themselves sex, money, and power. That's what these guys do. That's what these guys do. Don't be like them, Jesus says. Jesus never does this. Jesus does not use us to get his power. He uses his power to get us. Jesus doesn't demand that we serve him and give to him from ourselves. Jesus takes all of himself and generously gives it to us. Jesus is the perfect leader because he doesn't need us to serve him. He wants to serve us. Jesus is humble and Jesus is generous. And then finally, Jesus here is uh, genuinely spiritual. He's a genuine God worshiper. Look at the description of them in verse 40, 40 the bad, uh, middle line of verse 40. This is the bad leaders. For a pretense, they make long prayers. So they pray these elaborate prayers, very fancy, very spiritual very insightful, but they're doing it for a pretense. They're doing it for show, that which, for the pretense of what we're not exactly sure here. Maybe to get money, maybe to devour widows' houses, maybe to get more power, maybe so that people will continue looking at them and saying, oh, Rabbi, welcome, take the best seat at the party. Maybe for that, we don't really know, but what we do know is that it's fake. Their spirituality is fake in order to gain for themselves. Jesus is always genuine. This is maybe the most important one of the three because can you fake humility? Oh yeah, we do it all the time, don't we? Like somebody will say, you did a great job and we'll be like, oh, just a country boy, working hard. Or just, you know all shuck, the, all, the all shucks thing? You can, you can totally fake humility. Can you fake generosity? Oh yeah, for sure. You can make kind of a show of taking care of other people when, when really you're just giving little pittance here and there and you're really not giving them everything that you could be giving them and you're holding back, but you kind of want people to know that, like, I'm a generous person. You can fake that. But can you fake genuine spirituality? You can't because the definition of genuine is not fake. So you can't fake genuinely being concerned about Jesus, genuinely being concerned about other people. Jesus is the only one who does this. Like, even, you guys know this, right? Like, I, I told you this before. I'm standing up here right now. And I like, I, I seriously, I want to preach God's word to you, but there's a big chunk of me that really wants you to think I'm interesting and funny. I, I can't, I, I can ask God to forgive me of this. I do it every time I preach, but I can't actually wash myself clean of that. I'm very, very concerned about what you think about me and that you'd be impressed with all this. Jesus never is. He doesn't need to be because he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah priest who can shut down the temple because he's the creator God. He doesn't need us to be impressed with him. And so he gives completely and genuinely. He worships his father with no sort of like, so somebody asked me this week, this is a good question, somebody asked me, if Jesus is God and the father is God, why would Jesus need to pray to the father? And the answer is because when you and I pray, it's because we always need something. But Jesus just prays to his father because he likes talking to him, right? I don't always, I don't, when, I, when I talk to my dad, I'm not always talking to my dad because I need him to do something for me, although he probably feels like that. Sometimes I just talk to my dad because he's my dad and I talk to him. Jesus is always at 100% that level. He's just is so into his father and so into the spirit. He's genuine. Now, here's the point. It's good for us to exhibit these qualities, but that's not the point here. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you guys be like this. He says, 
beware of guys who aren't like this. He's telling us to watch out for bad leaders because he wants us to go to him because he's the good leader. That's why I switched the characteristics around to focus on Jesus' humility and generosity and genuine spirituality because that's the target. I'm not, let me say it one more time just so we're all clear. I'm not telling you to be generous this morning or to be humble or to be genuine. It's good things to do and we should all do those. That's not the point here. I'm telling you, go to Jesus because he's the only one who is those three things. He's the Messiah King who's the only one in the world who's completely generous and completely humble and completely arrogant in a right way. Okay, that's the third thing. And then that's the second thing. Finally, the third thing will be done. What Jesus does, this links up with verses 41 through 44. It's no mistake that he's in the temple, right? Why is he in the temple? He's in the temple because he owns the place. He runs the place. The temple is just a picture of him. The temple is actually by this point obsolete. Like we don't need a building where God lives and where you go to get forgiveness of sins because now we have a human being on the earth, which is where God lives and where you go to get forgiveness of sins, Jesus. So Jesus can waltz in and out of the place like he owns it. And he does. He's sitting there. Look, it says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Um, how, would you like that? Like if somebody in the church like pulled it. So we haven't passed the plate in here because for COVID for like two years. So we have the offering plate out there and people, you know, you guys, we, we, walk, we walk by and we put our offering in there. What if one of us decided I'm going to put a chair right there and watch everybody put their offering in and then make comments like, hey, 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 check that out. That guy put a bunch of money in, but it wasn't as much as that one guy who put in just less than that earlier. That would be deeply offensive to all of us. Why? Because it's none of their business what we put in the offering plate. Why does Jesus get, into the, get to sit in the temple and do running play-by-play? Why, why is Jesus live-tweeting everybody's offering? Because he owns the temple. He can shut it down. He is the temple. And so he sits in there and he does it. Now, so the way it worked is, is there were 13 different boxes in the temple of the women, which is just inside the temple of the Gentiles. There's 13 boxes, and uh, the boxes are all for different types of offerings. And they would have had like, uh, they were actually called trumpets, they weren't really trumpets, but they looked like trumpets, so everybody called them trumpets. These boxes had these like trumpet-shaped funnels coming out of the top of them, and you dropped your money in, and then, you know, it, big, and then it narrowed at the bottom, probably to keep would-be thieves from sticking their hand in there and grabbing stuff. But it's probably also, too, why, um, um, you know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, like, when you give, don't be playing the trumpet like the Pharisees do. That's probably a play on words. It was probably con- like playing the trumpet might have been like a slang term for going and giving your money into the, the shofar, it was called, into the trumpet. And so um, Jesus is sitting there watching them do this, and the people come in, they put in the, all the money, they make the show, they play the trumpet, you know, all the rich people put in their money. And then there's this poor widow who comes in, and she puts in two small copper coins, which make a penny, don't think like our pennies, it's actually um, uh, one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius is, you, you do the math on your own, I'm not going to do it for you. A denarius is about one day's work, one day's pay for the average day labor, about one sixty-fourth of that she's giving. And it's, you know, it's a handful of dollars. It's, you know, five, ten bucks maybe she's throwing in there. And Jesus points her out. And on one level, is she an example for us of a willingness to give everything to God? Yeah, you know, you should, you should be willing to give everything to God. On another level, she's not, right? I mean, I, I can't. I can't read this. Should I be able to read this text and say, everybody, what this text is teaching us is I need, you to go, I need you to go to the bank and I need you to empty it. I need you to liquidate all your property and give your money to this church because that's what the woman did and Jesus praised her. No, that's not what's going on here. There's actually something deeper going on. And again, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be willing and generous to give, but this woman is functioning in a different way. Jesus is saying that these bad religious leaders are using the temple as a way to aggrandize themselves. They wear the long robes. They want the greetings. They want to boss you around. They want to manipulate you for your money. And then they come in here and they make a big show of giving their money. Why? Because God's house has become a place for them to parade themselves. They come in here and peacock around, and they're using religion and God to glorify themselves. And here's this woman who's exactly the opposite. She is all in herself. And it's not actually about her. Jesus is using her as a way to argue why he 
is allowed to shut the temple down. And the reason why is because he's the only one who can actually do what she's doing. Like she's going to give her money, and then she's going to leave, and ostensibly she's not going to die. She's not going to go home and starve to death. But when Jesus relates to the temple, he actually gives himself up completely for the cause of God's presence here on earth. He dies on the cross. Now, how does that come out? Unfortunately, you look at verse 44. Unfortunately, our English translations can't possibly get at this because they're trying to make sense of her. But the last line says this. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. Literally in Greek, it says, her whole life. It doesn't say all she had to live on. It says she put her whole life in there. That's the last line that Jesus says in this conversation. Chapter 12 ends it. From then on, Jesus is done engaging with the public. He's going to have a conversation with his disciples in chapter 13. It's a private conversation, though. It's an in-house conversation that we'll look at for the next two weeks. But this is the last time he actually wants to make clear, here's what I'm doing here. And he does it by saying, check out that woman. That's right. She gave up her whole life. And he uses that as an answer for why he could shut the temple down. Because he is the one who gives up his whole life. Look, that's what you need, right? That's what we need. I say this a lot in here. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But what we really want is a leader to guide us. We want a priest to fix us. But in, in each one of those cases, we want someone who can give themselves to us. Like, that's what you want. You want someone who you know is genuine and honest and on your side. And there's not a single human being like that that exists. Now, you love birds out there. You're like, oh, my spouse is like that. But you're actually just lying to me unless you just got married a few days ago and you're still living in that bubble. You know that your spouse is not the person who gives themselves completely to you. You know that they're always kind of, there's always a little wall, there's a little passive aggressiveness, there's a little manipulation. It's always, it's always the case. Why? Because your spouse isn't Jesus. Your spouse can't possibly give you all of, all of herself or all of himself. But Jesus can. He can put his whole life into that trumpet and dump it out in the temple for us. He dumps it all out. He empties it himself because he has the right to do it and he has the power to do it. He is the Messiah King priest who can shut the temple down because he's going to actually do with his own body what the temple was designed to do, connect us to God. Okay, stand with me and let's pray and then we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being... Thank you for being a God who gives yourself to us. Thank you for being a God who does not demand us to give ourselves to you. Knowing, which I'm, I'm sure you do, we all do, that that's completely hopeless and that we're broken and empty and we're hurting and we're paranoid and we're filled with shame and we're filled with regret of our past choices. And I personally even regret the choices I know I'm going to make poorly in the future. Like, what good are we to you, Father? But you have looked at us and called us your children and given us yourself, all of yourself, your whole life you've given to us and you've made us your own and now you've rescued us from our brokenness and our sin. And Father, help us to find our deepest satisfaction. Help us to find our point of joy, our point of fulfillment, not in our idols, not in sex, money, or power or people thinking well of us or whatever, but help us to find all of that in you. Lord, in your mercy. Father, here on this uh, All Saints Day, we thank and praise you for all those who've gone on before us. And we rejoice, Father, that uh, while we, in a certain sense, miss them physically, that we believe, because your word says it's true, that even right now at this moment, we are worshiping with them around your throne in glory. And we pray that you would bless the memory of those who've passed on from us this year. We think, for, we think of Norval Guzwell and of Paul Kelso and of Joe Early, all three men who were completely devoted to you to, 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 by the power of your Holy Spirit and to the best of their ability and who served your people here and who served Glen Carbon for years and years and years. God, we thank you for their memory and we thank you for their legacy. The fact that we're even standing here in this building is due to them and the other saints who have gone on before us. And Father, we long for the day where with joy we'll be raised up together with them physically and we can worship you. We can worship uh, you together with them uh, in body and in spirit. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you have given yourself to us. You've called us your people and you let us by your grace, you let us call you our God. And so we come to you as your children bound up in your son, Jesus Christ, with sins forgiven, 
and with as hard as it's for me to believe this and even say it out loud, with consciences cleansed, cleansed, uh, with no shame, we come into your throne room. And we ask you these requests as your children. We ask them in the name of your son, Jesus, fully confident that you will answer them according to your loving will. Amen. If you can, confess uh, your faith with me with the words of the Nicene Creed. This is found in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
please stand. Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so little ones to him belong they are weak but he is strong yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Don't forget the spaghetti that the teenagers are preparing for you downstairs. Go in peace.